0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to episode 61 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. I'm Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator and coach and I work with big-hearted educators that are ready to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Energy by Design is my game-changing wellbeing program for educators. Over four weeks, you will have access to a space to connect, share, laugh and learn with others that get it and are ready to reclaim their spark. Join the wait list to be the first to know when enrolments open. What is your relationship with sugar? How often do you find yourself reaching for something sweet? Sugar was once such a rare resource that nature decided we didn't need an off switch. In other words, we can keep eating sugar without feeling full. In the space of 150 years, we have gone from eating no sugar to more than a kilogram of sugar a week. In this week's episode, I have the joy of chatting with David Gillespie. David is a lawyer and the author of Sweet Poison, Why Sugar Makes Us Fat, an exploration into the way we are poisoning ourselves with sugar. Sweet Poison is a best-selling book and is generally credited for starting the current wave of sugar awareness in Australia. David was 40 kilos overweight, lethargic, sleep-deprived father of four with twins on the way. He knew he needed to lose weight, but he had run out of diets. He had tried them all. After doing some research, he discovered the truth about sugar. So David cut sugar from his diet and immediately started to lose weight and keep it off. Slim, trim and fired up, David set out to look at the connection between sugar, our soaring obesity rates and some of the more worrying diseases of the 21st century and discovered some startling facts in the process. In this conversation, we discuss our constantly expanding waistlines, the addictive nature of sugar, the prevalence of sugar in processed foods and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with David Gillespie. David, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast.
1: Absolute pleasure.
0: Today we're going to be talking about your book, Sweet Poison Why Sugar is Making Us Fat. What inspired you to write this book?
1: Probably being fat. Um, it was the, the long and the short of it. <laughs> I, and not to suggest I'm not now, but I was. Doing what most men my age do when they hit their mid-30s, which is fairly assiduously gain weight. So barely a year would go by when I wouldn't be going up a pant size. And you don't really notice these things until people start pointing it out to you or until something else happens in your life. And and the something else that happened in my life uh, was that in the early 2000s, uh, we had four kids under the age of eight. And... That was pretty heavy going and I was finding it harder and harder to cope with them, I Was feeling more apathetic uh, and less helpful uh, in general. And then my wife rather inconsiderately uh, decided that we were going to have twin babies to add to that. Now, I wasn't coping with the four we had, <laughs> so adding twin babies, especially given that Lizzie, my wife, firmly believes in breastfeeding uh, the kids until they're 12 months old reasons which I wrote about in a different book but we can talk about that another day and that meant that she would be when you're breastfeeding twins you're out of action right because they one's feeding the others not and vice versa it's it's pretty hard going when you're breastfeeding one child let alone two simultaneously so she was going to be out of action for a year and which meant that I would be looking after the other four and I wasn't coping with that and I thought you know what I need to do something about my weight uh, by then, I was probably uh, well north of 130 kilos, which was pretty big. And I thought, oh, I'm going to start doing something about this. And I'd done, I mean, off and on over the years, I'd done the things that people told you to do. You know, I'd see a diet on the television or hear about something on the radio. And, uh, you know, I'd do all of those sorts of things. Uh, walk-the-dog diet or the cabbage soup diet or the low-carb this or the high-protein that or you name it. I'd, I'd tried them all and they'd all worked. Every single one of them had worked um, for exactly as long as my willpower held out, which was usually about two weeks. And in those two weeks, I would lose uh, a kilo or so or a week, um, but I hated every second of it. Uh, you know, it was like torture. Uh, and so after the willpower gave out, I would just go back to eating the way I, di- I did before and the, usually the kilo or two I'd lost would come back with interest. I-, I thought this can't be right. Science must know more about what makes us fat uh, than you know all these diets that require extreme exercises, willpower. And I also didn't buy the other side of the argument, which is that suddenly all of humankind had lost control over their willpower And were getting fatter, you know, because you see obesity statistics. Well, then they were saying, "Oh my God, 60% of the population are overweight or obese," and we're now up at 75%. But even then, 60% was pretty insane. And I just didn't buy that suddenly at the end of the 20th century, humankind had lost any ability to exercise willpower. It couldn't possibly be willpower dependent. Uh, And if you rule out willpower, and then look around at all the other animals on the planet who don't seem to have an issue with getting fat, uh, except for the ones that we feed, of course, oddly <laughs> enough. Uh, and you start to think, well, maybe, maybe it's not about the willpower. Maybe it's about the food. Maybe there's something in the food. Now, at the time, we had just come to the end of approximately two decades of our health authorities telling us that the reason we are getting fat was because fat made us fat. And I didn't buy it because... When I looked at the evidence that they were relying on for that, now I should say right at the start of this, I'm not a dietitian, I'm not a doctor. I'm I'm not remotely qualified to talk about any of the things that we're going to talk about today. My actual qualification is as a lawyer, and the only relevant training I have is to look at evidence because uh, rather like journalists, lawyers are trained to don't say anything unless you are able to put a footnote after it saying where you got it from. Uh, so... I always look for the evidence for an assertion. So, the first thing I did on the whole fat makes us fat story was go to the Heart Foundation website and various other public health websites and discovered that when they referenced where they'd gotten the notion that fat made us fat from, it didn't stack up to much. It basically amounted to someone figuring out that fat was nine calories per gram versus protein and carbohydrates, which were four calories per gram. So, obviously, if you ate the same number of grams of each, you'd have twice as many calories as from fat as you would from anything else. And that was childishly idiotically simple because even I knew the human body is capable of recognizing how many calories it's taking in and how many it needs. That was just a nonsense argument. But I went with it. I, I said, okay, where's the evidence behind this? Where are the where are the studies that show that all of this works? And there are none. What I discovered that is there were none. There there were a lot of theories. There was a lot of guesswork, there was a lot of highfalutin sounding papers by very important sounding people, but there wasn't any actual evidence that any of this was true, any more so than me saying eating cucumbers makes you green. (laughs) Uh, It sounds logical, but proving it is another thing altogether. So as I was looking through that evidence, I came to the conclusion that wasn't true. But I also found a separate line of evidence that had been going since the end of the Second World War in London uh, by the fellow who started the London School of Nutrition, in fact, the first school of nutrition in the world, a fellow by the name of John Yudkin. Now, Professor Yudkin had a different theory. He'd also noticed many, many years before I did that fat makes you fat doesn't actually work when you try to do it in the lab. He'd looked for alternatives. And what he'd found was that he could reliably make both lab rats and humans fat by feeding them sugar. Couldn't make them fat by feeding them fat, but he could make them fat by feeding them sugar, just ordinary old table sugar. Now, he thought about that a bit, and because he knew that table sugar is in fact made up of two simple sugars, glucose and fructose, he was a little disturbed by his finding because humans are designed... To operate on an assumption that almost all the calories in our environment come from one of two places, either from glucose or from fat. And so he said, well, if, if it's the glucose half of sugar that's making us fat, then we've got a real problem because almost all of our food supply ultimately ends up as glucose molecules. And he needed to test that. So he did construct a series of experiments where you know he'd feed glucose and fructose separately, and also table sugar. And what he found was he got the same results feeding with fructose as he got with the table sugar, only worse. People got fatter quicker, animals got fatter quicker, diabetes progressed faster, etc. We can talk about the other diseases he discovered as well later. And on the glucose side of the diet, none of this happened. So he narrowed it down. It wasn't actually table sugar that was making people fat. It was half of table sugar, the fructose half of table sugar. Now he didn't have the biochemistry in the 1940s and 50s to explain why, partially because many of the hormones involved weren't going to be discovered until the 1990s. But he put together some some theories about what might be going on. He wrote them down and was roundly attacked from all sides, most principally by the public health authorities in the United States, where several people had started to make a bit of a fortune out of the notion that what you needed to be on was a low-fat diet. So he lost that fight, and we got the low-fat diet as a result in the 1980s, and his theories about sugar drifted into irrelevance. Several people tried to revive them, including him, but uh, unfortunately no one ever managed to overcome the very loud voice and deep pockets of an industry which by then was going with the message that low-fat was the answer. By the 1980s, we had uh, health guidelines, healthy eating guidelines from the United States. First time in history, anyone had bothered to publish a guideline for losing weight. It hadn't been necessary prior to that. Nutrition advice prior to that had consisted of advice about how not to die from starvation. But in the 1980s, we had advice about how to lose weight, which basically was don't eat fat. Australia dutifully copied the US and uh, food food manufacturers did their best to stick with the guidelines so that they could say, oh, yes, we're healthy. Look, we've got a tick from the relevant authorities telling us that we're healthy. Look at our low-fat food. Now, of course, all they did was in removing the fat, they'd replace it with sugar. So you have products like, for example, now something that you can buy on a supermarket shelf right now, 99% fat-free mayonnaise is 20% sugar. It doesn't have any fat in it. Uh, but it does have an awful lot of sugar in it. And you might say, oh, well, that might make the mayonnaise taste very sweet. Well, you'd be right. So they have to put a lot of salt in it too to balance out the sweetness of the sugar. Uh, so when I read all of that and thought, uh, said to myself, oh, yeah, well, if that's right, if all this stuff that Yudkin's written about is, is correct, then all I need to do is stop eating sugar." <laughs> uh, that's simple that should sort everything out now i thought it would be simple because i wasn't actually adding a lot of sugar to anything you know i, I wasn't adding sugar into my tea or my coffee I don't, i'd be i I'd be, would have been surprised if we would even had a bag of sugar in our house at all I, I wasn't adding sugar to breakfast cereal i wasn't adding sugar to anything so i thought well this is going to be easy i just don't eat chocolate bars and don't drink cans of coke and i'll be right and then i started reading labels uh, and I discovered that my favorite breakfast cereal, which at the time was, um, I think, Fiber Plus with sultanas in it, was about 25% sugar. And I discovered that my favorite yogurt had more sugar in it than ice cream. And none of this had been was called out on the front of the packaging of this stuff. It was all being marketed. You know, they, both of those things had heart foundation ticks on them. You know, this was health food. If I'd known that I could have been eating Fruit Loops and gotten less sugar, I probably would have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but well, that's probably a little exaggeration, but, <laughs> but they're in the same ballpark. And so I thought to myself, okay, well, this is going to be a little bit harder than I thought. What I'm actually going to have to do is read all the labels of everything in the cupboard and toss out everything that's got sugar added to it which doesn't leave much, to be perfectly honest. Uh, When you start taking things like uh, tomato sauce, which is 25% sugar, or barbecue sauce, which is 55% sugar, uh, or low-fat mayonnaise, which is 20% sugar, or everything you spread on bread except for butter and Vegemite, you name it, everything's got sugar added to it. Uh, And when you start removing all those things, there's not an awful lot left. But what I did find was some surprising things left. So pie and chips was fine as long as I didn't put tomato sauce on it. Once you eliminate the things that taste sweet, and that's what I found was the appropriate test, if you put the thing in your mouth and it tastes sweet, then it's got sugar in it. You don't need to read a label. You just taste it. And the longer you are off sugar, the more capable you are of tasting the difference to the point where you can smell it once you're off it, you know, probably for two or three months. In fact, even now I can walk through a supermarket and I I could be blindfolded and tell you exactly where the chocolate aisle was. It initially was difficult, but once you sort out the details of, well, these foods are okay and these ones aren't, then it actually becomes quite easy to avoid. The tricky bit, though, is sugar is addictive, it turns out. Um, Now, uh, we don't have the word chocoholic in the language because we like the taste of cocoa. I don't know if you've tasted raw cocoa, but it's roughly equivalent to dirt and about as addictive. Uh, So chocoholic is all about the other 40% of chocolate, which is sugar. And it is addictive. And we now know there's a biochemical mechanism for that addiction. It's well documented. This is not new news. That makes it very tricky to stop eating it because... Even though you know you shouldn't eat it, you will anyway because you're an addict. And what addiction means is that when you stop eating it, you experience cravings for it. Everyone does. You're not weak. It's not your fault. You've been consuming an addictive substance, like blaming a smoker for experiencing cravings for cigarettes. They're addicted. That is the design. Uh, And that is the design with sugar as well. The reason our food supply is so full of sugar is because they can't put anything else more addictive in. Uh, if you're a food manufacturer, your growth is limited by the size of population growth, which is about 1% to 2% a year, which is pathetic uh, if you're trying to grow a commercial enterprise. You want growth somewhere up around 5 to 10% a year. The only way you're going to get that is to get people to buy your food in preference to somebody else's food. Best way to do that is put addictive things in your food and hope that the other person doesn't put as much addictive stuff in their food. Uh, actually, a story about that. Very early on in in my process here, I was looking. I discovered that cornflakes were almost acceptable thing to have for breakfast. Most brands of cornflakes were about ten percent sugar, which was exceedingly high for something that didn't taste like it had any sugar in it. And then I found a brand, Woolworths home brand cornflakes, which was only five percent sugar. And I thought that's close enough. To my my rule of thumb is three percent sugar or below, but close enough. I was happy for my kids to eat the Woolworths brand cornflakes. And then suddenly they disappeared from the shelves. And I wrote to Woolworths and I said, they're our staple. Are they coming back? What's going on? And they said, oh, no, 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 no. They're just being reformulated. They'll be back next month. (laughs) They came back next month. What do you know? They're 10% sugar. So reformulated meant making them competitive with all of our competitors who have twice as much sugar as we do. So if they could put caffeine or cocaine in our food, they would. They can't do that. Well, not the cocaine anyway. They're trying to put caffeine in as much as they can. They will do that because that's just part of selling food. Uh, And at the moment, they can do it with sugar and people will thank them for it. So they do. I have no idea where I am in the answer to my question, uh, to your question, (laughs) Um, uh, but uh, how oh, yes, you asked, how did I come to be doing this? Okay, so I did it. actually went through all of that and deleted sugar from my diet. Now, at first, it was really hard, and I used some crutches to get me through that, which we can talk about in more detail if you're interested. But after probably about a month or so, it became really, really easy. and No willpower required whatsoever. I didn't feel like I was on a diet. I didn't have all the problems I'd had on previous diets where I was fighting against my own willpower. It was just really easy to just do this, which is if it tastes sweet, don't put it in your mouth. End of story. And what I found was that I was consistently losing about a kilo a week. Now, after about a year, I'd lost about 40 kilos, which had taken me down to my present weight, which is about 90 90 kilos. And that was
0: Mm.
1: now about two decades ago. And I've stayed the same weight ever since. So I'd gone from a model where I was just continuously putting on weight to one where I hadn't turned myself into Brad Pitt, but I didn't have to worry about my weight anymore. I I really could eat anything I liked as long as it wasn't sweet and I would stay the same weight and my appetite control would be automatic and I just didn't have to think about it. I also hadn't anticipated it, but I'd gained a new appreciation of food. Suddenly I could taste a lot of things that I hadn't been able to taste before. It's almost like a a mist of sugar had been lifted from flavours. And I didn't uh, live to eat, Uh, you know, I ate to live. So I wouldn't eat if I wasn't hungry. And when I did eat, I want it to be worthwhile and taste good, not just sweet. It was a foundational change for me. And four years after that happened, a friend of mine said, well, you're constantly telling people what you did because, a lot. you know, when you lose 40 kilos, people ask you what on earth you did and the story was rather like the one I've just told you so lengthy and and a friend of mine said well why don't you just write it all down because I think there's a lot of people who wouldn't mind knowing this and at the time you know it's hard now looking back on it where there's a lot more appreciation now of the dangers of sugar but honestly when sweet poison came out I was attacked from all quarters and it really did surprise me the heart foundation was having a go at me, the dietitians were having a go at me. It was like some sort of heresy to dare to suggest that people stop eating sugar. I mean, even the Australian skeptics were having a go at me. It was it was like I was suggesting people swallow, you know, rat poison or something. It was bizarre. Thankfully, now we've moved on a bit, 15 years later, and people are a lot more accepting that maybe sugar's not that good for us. Uh but when the book came out, it was really surprising how controversial it was. So that's that's how I got to it.
0: <laughs> David, I love so much of what you've shared because it is so powerful to really go through the experience of why we do what we do. And so often we come to these turning points in our life because of desperation. I can only imagine having four young children and then the idea of twins, like my mind and body just would... Just be blown to think, okay, how am I going to increase my capacity, my energy to tackle this? And that's sending you off on this adventure to really find out what is going on here. And I think using that example of animals is so fascinating because when you see animals in the wild, they're a healthy weight range. I'm sure their BMI is fine. But as you say, it's the animals that we feed that have a problem. And the food that we consume, we start to have a problem with that and taking time to really consider that because if we're left in an environment where we're eating good quality foods that we're designed to process, that we have this balance of knowing when we've had enough. We don't have to keep going and going and going. And that's what I notice about sugar is that you can never have enough. It feels like there's always more to have.
1: As I said, the biochemistry has caught up with not only John Yudkin, but even me now. It's overtaken. Uh, There were some things that I speculated about in sweet poison in the biochemistry that have subsequently been proven to be true. The biochemistry is there now. We we know how this works. Uh, Sugar subverts a a number of controls in the human body. It zips past a control that tells our, our liver when we have enough energy on board and I could bore you to death with the detail on it, but I won't. People who really want to know this can go and have a look at some of the diagrams in Sweet Poison. But the importantly, what it does is also subvert our appetite control system. So not only is it invisible to our appetite control system in that it's not being counted at all. So those fructose calories, that half of sugar, the glucose half is being counted. We're well, well evolved to count glucose but we don't even see the fructose. So so half of the calories are already not being counted. So that on its own would be a problem. It turns out that it also alters our ability to detect other calories. So it changes our set points in our um, appetite control system so that not only is it not being counted, but it's giving us permission to eat more than we should of everything. It's that double whammy of the fructose itself directly making us fat and making us fat by reason of our own appetite control system, not realizing when we've had enough. So it's exactly what you said, which is with sugar, you've always got room for more.
0: It's so true. Like I think about my children, they've always got room for more when it comes to things that they like, not so much the other
1: things. Yeah, around here we call dessert stomach. It doesn't matter how big the, the meal has been, you've always got a dessert <laughs> stomach. That is an interesting thing because there's there's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there about things that to suggest that that's why, for example, McDonald's, one of the fast first fast food providers, made sure that meal deals always had a large serving of sugar in the form of the drink in that it increases your capacity to eat and therefore you'll order more fries and more burgers, et cetera, etc. Cetera. That is a conspiracy theory, but it sounds logical to me.
0: It does sound logical in the sense that because you feel like you haven't had quite enough. Once you finish that meal, you think, Oh, what else can I have? And for me personally, sugar is a struggle. It is something that I am addicted to and attached to. I can give or take alcohol exercise. I've got locked in. There are so many different things, but sugar feels like my last frontier. I can even manage my digital better than sugar and reading your book. It's tipped me over. It's tipped me over from that. Oh, I should really look at that to, okay, this is serious. I think the way that you wrote it was so powerful. To me, it sounded like that lawyer. It was like you're building evidence to show that this is what's really going on. And there are steps that we can take to move beyond this way of functioning and to take control of our bodies and what we're putting in our mouths. And it is possible.
1: It's written like that because I was trying to convince myself. I didn't know the answer before I started, (laughs) right? Um, What that book does is lay out my research as I found it. And as you say, by the end of it, you come to the conclusion, well, this is inarguable. There's just nothing that can be said. And I do consider the counter arguments and I do look at, at why these things might not be true, but the evidence was just insurmountable. It's just biochemistry that is there the studies are there the case control studies are there the logic is there and it's just to top it all off trying it on yourself and having it work suggests well it must be right and now we as I said now we're to a point where I'm not going to get you're not going to get a lot of controversy from your listeners saying oh that's rubbish I, I don't have a problem with sugar at all uh, no one's going to be saying that. They're, most people are going to be sitting down and eyeing off the packet of mint slices and knowing they have <laughs> a craving and knowing that if I said to you, take everything that has sugar in it in your house and throw it in the bin, most people would really have a problem with that. Uh, and that instantly says to you, this is an addictive substance. It's, when I, it's like when I tell, you know, I've written books about uh, digital addiction as well. And it's when I talk to an audience of, you know, often parents at a school about digital addiction. And I'll say something like, uh, look, all you've got to do is just delete Instagram and Facebook and so on from your phone. And they're all, yeah, yeah, that's easy. I'll do it right now. Because in the back of their mind, they know if it gets bad, they can always put it back on in about three and a half seconds. Because then I say, oh, but that's not all. What you've also got to do is delete your account. And then we've got a problem. Then we've got a problem. Then people are humming and harring and trying to find excuses why they can't do it. And sugar is the same. You've got to decide if you're not going to consume it that you cannot have any opportunity to consume it. And that is hard. That is really hard. And because it's hard, I wrote a second book, a follow-up to Sweet Poison called The Sweet Poison Quit Plan, which goes into the exact how I did it step by step. What exactly did I do? How did I make sure that I stuck to those rules? How long did it take? How did I get through it? That's the important bit. If you're actually wanting to do this, you are breaking an addiction, no less of an addiction than smoking, and you need real guidance on how to get through it.
0: Yes, that is so powerful to really think about what are the processes we can put in place to set ourselves up for success. And there was another interesting part in your book when you talked about exercise Mm. and how we have this idea that it's, if we exercise more, that's going to be the key to having a healthy weight.
1: We've been told that the reason that cutting fat out of our diet doesn't make us thin, because that's our expectation. You know, when they give us that message, fat makes us fat. and And people say, okay, well, I've been eating all this low fat stuff you've been giving me, by the way. I certainly was suffering under the impression, probably naively, probably intentionally so, uh, in in that world where fat makes us fat, that when the manufacturer of marshmallows put on the front of their packet that it was 99% fat-free, that that basically meant it it was health food. Uh, So pure sugar, but 99% fat-free. And a lot of us have been doing that eating fat-free or low-fat food and not losing any weight, in fact, usually putting on weight. And so we had not unreasonably been saying to health authorities, well, you know, your plan doesn't seem to be working. And they'd say, ah, ah, well, you see, the problem is that it's about calories in, calories out, and what's not happening here is that you're still eating all those calories and you're not burning them off. And so what you need to do is have some exercise. Now, the problem with that is that it assumes that the human body is some sort of stupid machine that can't take account of its calorie needs. And and it's as idiotic as as me saying to you, well, let's try an experiment. If I said to you, look, I, I want you to hold your breath now and I want you to hold it for as long as you can. And let's say you did that. And then at about probably 30 seconds to a minute's worth of that, unless you're well trained, you would say, right, I've had enough and you start breathing again. That's you exercising willpower over an automatic process in the body, which is getting enough oxygen in your body for you to stay alive. We have exactly the same processes going on with calories, which is the body knows how many calories it needs. It doesn't sit there with a calorie calculator and a guidebook. It knows how many it needs because it's the amount it needs to run the body given the energy expenditure. If you're a lumberjack and chopping down trees by hand all day long, you are going to need three and a half to 5,000 calories. If you're sitting at an office desk, you need 2,000 calories. The problem is that the body's doing all of that automatically, and it doesn't care that you think you're on a diet. If you exercise more, what are you doing? You're increasing the number of calories you need. Let's go back to the breathing example, because people seem to understand that better. If you are exercising more, what do you do? You breathe harder. Why? Your body has calculated it needs more oxygen. But what if you were on an oxygen diet and you were saying to your body, no, 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 Uh, you can't have that oxygen because I'm on an oxygen diet. I'm counting the amount of oxygen I'm consuming, so I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Your body would say, "Ah, no, sorry, we need the oxygen. We're having the oxygen. And that's exactly what it does with calories. So when you go to the gym and you work out like crazy and you burn a lot of calories, what does your body do it says well we deserve that mars bar in from the vending machine on the way out the door it's doing with calories what it does with oxygen which is it calculates how much it needs and it makes you consume that amount that's why exercise doesn't have any effect on your ability to lose weight except tangentially which is there are some things particularly as we age where you want to keep your major muscle groups which are significant burners of calories at a sort of activity level which could be maintained by going for a half-hour walk probably once a day. So if you've got a dog, they'll love you for that. Beyond that, it's no significant benefit from the perspective of losing weight, and even that isn't really about losing weight. It's just about maintaining muscle strength and, and muscle capability, particularly as you age. So as a means of losing weight, exercise is stupid. There are plenty of other good reasons to do it, but that isn't one of them.
0: It's so interesting that you highlight this because for so many people, they're probably exercising away, getting really frustrated as they're continuing to have more and more sugar that's just laced within their everyday foods. And they're thinking, oh, I need to work harder. I need to exercise more and not thinking about this element that's in our everyday experience. And I'm thinking about staff rooms and I'm thinking about the Arnott's Cream Biscuits and the favourites. And when people get stressed and busy, it feels like they just multiply and we're reaching for the sugar. So what can we start to do today to rethink sugar and the way that we consume it?
1: So I should just say something about that, the the thing you said about a stressed environment. All addictive substances relieve stress. The reason why people smoke is because they feel better when they smoke. When they are stressed, having a cigarette calms them down. When you are stressed, having some chocolate calms you down. All addictive substances, because of the effect of dopamine on our addiction and reward system, one of the things every addictive substance does and what makes it addictive is stress. They are all stress relievers. So you're exactly right. A staff room full of stressed teachers is a perfect place to put a bunch of addictive stuff. Now, the only legal addictive stuff you can put in a staff room full of uh, stressed teachers is probably a bowl full of Cadbury's favourites. What people have got to stop doing is they've got to get out of this mindset that they are at some way at fault for this. It's not your fault you're addicted. It's not your fault you need stress relief. What you've got to do is recognize that that's what is in fact going on and find alternative methods of stress relief. And the science is really clear on that, too, by the way. I happen to have written a book about that one called Brain Reset. And that one is about exactly that is, okay, how do you do stress relief? How do you get that dopamine hit that sugar would give you or anything else would give you without the addiction? And the answer is, Pretty obvious and old news to most people, but there's now science that gets it. There's three ways you can do it you can exercise. So, oddly, exercise is part of the solution as long as you have already broken the addiction. So, you can't be exercising and still eating sugar. You have to stop eating the sugar and then exercise. The exercise produces enough of a dopamine hit that it feels like you've had the sugar. So it's actually, when you're feeling like having that Mars bar, if you go for a run instead and then don't have the Mars bar, it actually is effective because the exercise acts as a stress reliever. The other thing you can do is find some way to focus. One of the popular ways to do this is through meditation. And much as I hate recommending herbal gerbil things like meditation, it is actually effective if you do it properly. And that is you have to clear your mind of everything and focus on the present. And this is easier said than done because it is very, very hard to clear your mind of everything and keep it clear for more than about 30 seconds. But that's what meditation is. If you can manage it, then that level of focus also gives you a dopamine hit, which is a great substitute for sugar. And then the third thing is find something else that you do that requires you to have intense focus. Now, for everyone, this will be different. For some people that might be playing music, for other people that might be doing hard maths problems, for other people that might be building model aeroplanes, you name it. It's got to be something, the kind of thing, and everyone will know it as soon as I describe it, the kind of thing that when you're doing it, you zone out of the world and you suddenly surface again after an hour or two and think, wow, what happened to that hour or two of my life? You were so focused on that thing. Uh, For me, it's writing. As I said, for other people, it might be playing or writing music. It might be doing art. It'll be something that most people would describe as a hobby, but it has to be an intense focus type of an experience, one where you have experienced what artists tend to call uh, the flow, where you are so into that thing that nothing else matters uh, and you are solely focused on that. Doing that gives you an intense dopamine hit better than any chocolate bar ever could.
0: That is so true. As you were talking about each of those elements, I was thinking, yeah, if I was to go for a run, I would finish feeling relaxed, feeling calm, feeling about what's next, you know, and then if I'm really hyper-focused on something, I'm not thinking about reaching for the favorites. I'm not thinking about going for the Arnott's creams and taking the time to really notice. And I guess that's where that meditation part comes in to actually give ourselves opportunities where we're not on that treadmill of addiction, the next, the next, the more, the more.
1: The key here is you have to stop consuming the addictive substance before you do these other things. Because if you do the exercise and you're still addicted to sugar, then all you'll do is eat more sugar when you finish exercise because you'll feel you're entitled to a reward.
0: That rings true. (laughs) (laughs)
1: What you have to do is you have to stop And use the exercise instead of the sugar.
0: Yes, that makes complete sense. Everything you have shared, there is just so much gold for us to really become aware of what we're doing, why we're doing it, what we're seeking, what we're hoping to get out of it. So to wrap up this incredible conversation, David, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Yeah, sure. I am inspired by?
1: Detail, I guess, is the answer to that. My focus thing is I love following rabbits all the way down the burrows uh, and getting right to the bottom of the evidence trail. So when I talk about something, I have the confidence that behind what I'm saying is hours hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of research and thousands of papers that I've read on that subject so that I know that what I'm saying is right.
0: When life feels hard? You know, honestly,
1: since... Not eating sugar. Life has felt a lot easier most of the time. (laughs) Um, it's, It's strange. And that sounds like a trite sort of a thing to say. I mean, sure, we all have our ups and downs, but it's never really felt very hard since then. An underrated skill is? Time management, I think, is an underrated skill. It's not something that I have found comes automatically. You've actually got to plan it and put real effort into stopping no matter how interesting something is and moving on to the other, to the next thing you're supposed to be doing.
0: And I'm looking forward to? Uh,
1: the next book. Uh, I'm always working on a book. I'm working on one at the moment about psychopaths in the workplace and some detailed how-to on how to deal with them. And so that's fascinating to me. And I'm looking forward to seeing what it's like when it's finished. You know, you, you start a story when you write a book like that, and it's a third done at the moment. I'm just really keen to see how it's finished. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, David, thank you for so much work that you've done in this research and the details so we can learn from it, we can grow from it. And now I have so many more books to add to my pile to really get into and think about how we can do things differently, how we can engage with the world in a more intelligent way and take more purposeful action. So thank you, David, for the work you're doing and for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast.
1: Absolute pleasure.
0: David has really built the case to why we need to think again about sugar. And this conversation has affirmed my commitment to consume less sugar, particularly fructose. David's book is Sweet Poison, Why Sugar Makes Us Fat, and is available online and in store. To learn more about David and his incredible work in the world, visit his website, davidgillespie.org. If you love this episode, please share it with anyone you think would benefit from hearing what David has discovered about sugar and the actions that we can take to break free from sugar addiction. To learn how I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, Open Mind Education. There you can book me to speak at your next professional development day or join the waiting list for the next round of Energy by Design, my game-changing wellbeing program for educators. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 61. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.